face of our love. Father God, thank you. Kindness and patience and mercy are things that we know because of you. Um, you poured out many blessings even just this weekend. Your abundant love, steadfastness in that is uh, hard to comprehend. It's hard to reconcile your goodness with our unworthiness. But it's true. And so I pray maybe that that would stir us enough to hear what you may <coughs> speak to us in this passage. Let us listen in that light. Let us be able to hear. Let us be able to understand. Let us be able to enjoy you. Ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus finished his temptations in the wilderness. He taught us something. He proclaimed something. He displayed something. And we left off last week with talking about that God alone is worthy of worship. And that that affects the whole universe. Even though there is powers at work, namely Satan in this world, they are not the ones worthy of worship. And that changes everything. And by the fact that God alone is worthy of worship leads Jesus to realize that that is most valuable instead of the kingdoms that he was offered by Satan or the shortcut that he was offered out of suffering by Satan. That his greatest treasure is the Father, always has been, always will be, and then we're left with the question, is that our greatest treasure. Now, if it is, if we're going to withstand in the day of temptation like Jesus, by the words of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus, then how are we going to go forward from those things? Are we just meant to kind of endure, resist temptation, resist bad things, become legalists who don't do certain things and define ourselves like that? Or are we going to actually go on the offensive being ready, as Ephesians 6 tells us, in peace, to bring good news. And that's how Jesus begins. He builds on the uh, proclamation of John the Baptist and carries on into the public ministry of the Messiah. So from here on out, um, this is where kind of the kingdom of heaven that Matthew likes to talk about gets inaugurated, so to speak. 
I've heard people talk about this moment as like, you know, imagine when you get a new CEO at your company or a new president and they give their first speech, their inauguration speech, and they lay out um, things that they hope to do and, and things they hope to see and things they expect and everybody's kind of hanging on every word to see what's going to happen now that this person's in charge. And by the way, that's how you need to look at the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not a border that you cross. It's not a geographical location. But the kingdom of heaven coming here on earth means that the power and authority to rule has been given to Jesus. And all the characteristics that follow the kingdom and the people that live in it are now present. In fact, when we get to uh, Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray in the Lord's Prayer, remember Matthew 6, 10? Thy kingdom come, how? Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. So that's how the kingdom's coming here. It's happening more than it is displaying a place. Jesus tells us that he's going to prepare the place where the kingdom is going to exist tangibly with you and I in the presence of God. But right now it is being present in the power and authority and the message and the characteristics of its citizens. Jesus brings that. So here's where it starts. And it starts kind of on the back of something that John understood about his ministry. Something that you and I should understand about our ministries, because there are ministries, not my ministry, but our ministries, our service in the kingdom. We're all enlisted. We didn't reach an age where uh, we grandfathered out or anything like that. We are all enlisted while we're here. That's what we're doing. We're advancing the kingdom. If you want to think in military terms, that's exactly what's happening from the time that we are born again until the time that we die. So John has fulfilled his role. And he knows that. And he says something in John 3.30 that, that kind of should be on the forefront of our minds as we exist here for a time. He says, I must decrease, but he must increase. So John laid out the red carpet for Jesus, so to speak. He called people to repent and believe, and then he peaced out, so to speak. I'm looking at you, Andy. Was that cool? Was that a good way to say it? Okay. So here's the ministry that everyone's been waiting for since God first proclaimed it. So verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Whenever I read that, I've always been kind of like, what? Why, why is he leaving the area when John's arrested? If, if you're honest with yourself, when you read that at first, just on the, on the surface level, you think he's abandoning John, right? Like, no. Jesus understands exactly what's taking place. John is decreasing, literally. He's going to go home. He's going to go home in a not-so-fun way, but he's going to go home. He's done. Now Jesus is going to enter in. So Jesus is withdrawing, not to abandon John. He will never abandon John. John will be with him for 
ever. But what he is doing is moving out of the way, letting all the hype and, and circus and stuff around John being arrested and then John being killed kind of run its course until John gets to retire, go home, and then Jesus will um, systematically and strategically work his way back into Jerusalem at the proper times. So he withdrew into, Gal into Galilee. Galilee is not necessarily a town. Galilee is a region which is north of Jerusalem. Okay? This is where Capernaum is going to be, where he's going to set up his home base for his public ministry. So he's going a ways up there. He's excusing himself from all of that till it quiets down, and then he can bring the force of his preaching of the kingdom and the display of God's glory into that heart of Israel, into Jerusalem. So he withdraws. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are the two tribes that were allotted those lands in the northern part of the promised land, right? And, and so that's where he goes. Now, we're going to see that that was prophesied that he go there. But I want you to understand something about the, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. They were rebellious. Rebellious. You can read about them in 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles. They uh, don't have a great history. And when, we're, when he's going to quote Isaiah 9 here, Isaiah 9 is coming off of the, the back of how awful this place has been, but giving hope for them in the future. Also, it's just not the place you would expect the Messiah to go or to base his ministry out of. He's supposed to be, you know, just arriving on the scene and just blowing things up, right? That'd be in Jerusalem. Where he, that would be where he should do that, right? No. He's going to go where uh, the lowlifes live. He's going to go in a place that seems dark, and it's going to allude to that in a minute. We call places dark, right? I hear a lot of people talking about the Northeast being spiritually dark. Spiritually dark place. Well, that's where Jesus is going to go live and base his operation out of. I think that's amazing. I think that displays to you who he came for. In Luke 5.31, Jesus tells us, I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. Those are the ones that need a physician. So that's where he goes first. And the messianic ministry that, we've been, that these Jews have been awaiting for so long and that these Gentiles have heard about is coming from there? Well, God told him it would, right? Verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, light has dawned. Now, here's the gospel. If you look at Isaiah 9, you, that maybe sounds familiar in your head. Isaiah 9, something's in Isaiah 9. 
Yeah, something is in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, 6, right? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We know that from our Advent season. That is always there. But what's before there? And who's the child? Well, we know that that's talking about Jesus. But in the context of Isaiah, Who's he promising and prophesying this to? Well, Isaiah 9.1. But there will be no gloom for, who is it, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. These rebellious tribes and places and people who were the first to be taken as Assyria moved into the northern kingdom and began to take people captive and scatter them, their promised hope even in light of what? Their own sin, which is the good news of this child we read about in verse 6. Because the enemy that Jesus comes to free us from, as he comes to reign with the power and authority of God's kingdom, he does it in a way that makes us sure that it's not political. It's more than that. It's about being held captive to something that crosses all borders and all boundaries, sin and death. Sin and death. And he comes to do that only because he has what? Grace and mercy. He should destroy the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, their tribes, people. He should destroy us, but yet he promises throughout the scripture that he is going to restore and bring them to become a new people full of his spirit, promises them a new covenant, promises them hope of, of a better day, and they don't deserve that. Why is he speaking to people with such hope who have brought themselves, brought themselves under the condemnation of God. This is the good news. Yeah, you're, you're worthy of all that he wants to do to destroy you as you've condemned yourself before him. But that's not what he takes pleasure in. In Ezekiel, he tells us he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not fun for God to punish sinners and destroy his enemies. It's not a difficult thing for him to do, but it's not what he enjoys. He's committed 
to justice and righteousness, and he will make sure that those things are met and fulfilled. He will not let anyone escape his justice and wrath. The only difference is who paid it. Either you're going to pay it or Jesus paid it for you. But either way, somebody's paying the penalty. He's committed to it. But he enjoys, he loves, he, he created so that he can display to the universe how merciful and kind and benevolent he is to creatures who have turned their back on him and spit on him and stripped him naked as he came in the flesh and displayed the glory and hung him on a tree. He created in light of the fact that he knew all that we would become if he were to make creatures like us. And yet he wanted the universe to display his glory, not in only the things he created, but in that which he did. By coming to save us. I mean, if, if you just think about it, uh, under the, the idea, the truth that God is completely sovereign, that he knows the beginning from the end, and that he works out the means in between to bring about his desired ends by the counsel of his own will, and why would he create people like us who are going to do what they're going to do? Just so he can condemn us? No. This is, this is the mistake that maybe you make, but that Israel made when he brought them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Did you bring us out here to kill us? What? Why would God do this? Why would he create a world with people in it? Because he wants to display his mercy and his grace. He's going to display his wrath and justice. He's going to have to. But that's only going to serve as a backdrop or a contrast into how amazing and how glorious that grace is. That's what the universe is going to marvel at. That's what the angels look at there in, in 1 Peter, I believe, who writes about that. They long to see. They're, they're amazed every time he, he saves a sinner and transforms them by giving them a heart of flesh, replacing that with, from that heart of stone. It's, it's a wonder to them. I don't, I don't know how much of a wonder that is to us anymore. The, the gospel should be a mind-blowing reality every day you get up. That if you're a Christian, you, you exist with an eternal hope that doesn't get snuffed out by what the day brings or, or what your circumstances currently are or what the past has been. And that's not normal. That's the most abnormal thing in a, in a dark, fallen world that's somewhat ruled by Satan. To have hope to have joy, peace, carry on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. This is countercultural. 
to exist as a kingdom citizen here in this place. And it all returns to the fact that God wants glory for his grace and his mercy. They are characteristics of his from before time began, and he will be glorified for them. Some people say it's egotistical. No, it's not, because there's benefactors of that mercy and grace. And, not to mention, the links that he goes to to humble himself as a man to give that to people. In Matthew, in that quote, Focus in on this phrase. People dwelling in darkness. Verse 16. They've seen a great light. Remember what John said about Jesus in the beginning of his gospel? That in him was life. And that life was the light of man. Except that they rejected him. They rejected him. He came in the flesh. They couldn't see him. They couldn't understand why. Because they're dwelling in darkness. They're blind. They're unable to see his his glory, even when he shows up right before them. Even if they're waiting for him, they don't see him. And it was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's him. He's light. By him we see all things, including ourselves. What was Paul overcome with on the Damascus Road? The light of the glory of Jesus. And through that, saw who he really was and saw who Jesus really is. The first of what's called the servant songs in Isaiah, start in Isaiah 42. And Isaiah says, or prophesies, from the Lord, as the Lord speaks, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. We're not talking about Isaiah here. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. So Jesus, we saw that in his baptism, right? He literally let us see who, or what was on him. The glory of God, the power of his spirit was on him. He talks about who this servant is. He's not going to cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, Jesus tells John, when John sends word by his disciples to ask, just to double check while I'm in prison here, that I'm not in prison for nothing, like, I'm I'm right, right? Like, you're the Messiah. 
And then Jesus sends him back a, a reference, right? And he quotes what he's going to do with prison. Now, John understands the Messiah more than anybody else. So he doesn't have to have confirmation that, oh, he's going to be taken out of Herod's prison, he's going to be okay. No. He needs confirmation that the Messiah is going to set the captive free, that not behind the bars, but behind the, the veil of darkness that, that Satan likes to use and keep there to veil us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to rescue people from. So it doesn't matter if John gets out of prison or not. What matters is that Jesus is coming to fulfill his mission to set people free from being captive to darkness and set them free to be able to see the glory of God. So he sends word, and John's supposed to pick up on the, the, the meaning behind the messianic uh, reference and understand, okay, he knows because he's the Messiah. He knows what he's come to do. No worries for me. Time to go home. So, Jesus comes and places himself first in the darkness and begins to just infect everything around him with that light, right? And begins to wake people up and, and alert them and, and fill them with that light which becomes our life. Because we know in Ephesians 2 that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. But God makes us alive together with Christ by Him shining into our hearts. This is the kingdom. I am the way. And I'll pay your penalty. I'll pay your debt. And I'll give you a new heart. And you will follow me as a citizen of this kingdom. And you'll proclaim the things that I'm going to proclaim and proclaim the things that I do and the things that I say. And then you'll come back home. So Jesus first kind of let out that public proclamation of the light of the kingdom there in Zebulun and Naphtali in the north. And then strategically made his way into the heart of Jerusalem. And the ultimate culmination of the proclamation of the glory of God's grace and mercy on the cross. Confounding the wisdom of the wise, making foolish all the smart people in this world by destroying the strongholds of death on a cross. Who would have thought? So look at verse 17. From that time, oops, sorry. From that time, inauguration, Jesus began to preach or proclaim, saying, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what preaching is? It is different than teaching in a way. It's proclaiming, heralding, often with a loud voice. Okay? It's not a dialogue. 
It's, it's, it's a standing on the street corner and alerting people of the news. Like the British are coming, or the end of the war, or whatever. Well, what we are preaching, proclaiming, is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, cool. But he says something before that. Something that John said exactly in Matthew 3, 2. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the gospel first begins there. With Jesus, the glory of Jesus, the mercy of God, the grace of God in him, embodied in him, um, exercised in him, contrasted with us, whom he's proclaiming these things to, which means repent. We aren't that. We aren't him. We aren't what we see in glory. So, repent. Turn away from your sin. Agonize, abandon, and regret the fact that you are not worthy of him. Hate the things that separated you from your creator. Hate the fact that you are not by birth a child of the kingdom, but a child by, of wrath, his wrath. And listen to the fact that he is offering you the, the, the ability to be welcomed in to a place that you're not worthy of, to a relationship that you're not worthy of. He's asking you to acknowledge that. Not just acknowledge that and be like, well, that's who I am, so take me, you know, as I am. No, that's, that's not the gospel. The gospel is transformative. Thank God it doesn't leave us where we are or who we are. Doesn't, doesn't, the, the language of accept me as I am, no, he, he has to change who I am. Otherwise, I'm not worthy of him. He's going to restore what we lost in the garden. He's going to do it first with us, and then he's going to do it with his actual creation. And then he's going to put us in that place and walk with us in the cool of the day and let us exist in his glory, not just until another temptation comes, but forever, he promises, sealed there by gates not allowing the weeping and gnashing of teeth to be a part of that kingdom, but only allowing the light of his glory to illuminate for all eternity the existence of his people dwelling with him. The kingdom of heaven is at hand or near or quite literally moving towards. Moving towards what? A collision course with this world. Hopefully a collision course with you. If it hasn't already. The invention of the Hubble telescope allowed us to see that the universe was expanding, which basically allowed us to see that there was maybe 
a starting point because everything is kind of expanding outwards. We can see trails of light from stars and planets that would communicate to us that they moved from being nearer to being further away. I don't understand all that. That's just what I was taught. But it's true, okay? Now, the kingdom of heaven is moving in. It's not going away as Satan would like it to. It's pressing in. And the fact that it's pressing in now and that it's pressing in slowly is in a great example of his what? Mercy. Grace. It's kind of like, you know, 9-11. And we talk a lot about everybody that ran into those burning towers, right? God bless them. Well, where's the kingdom going into? I mean, if there's anything that's on fire, if there's anything that's moving towards destruction, it's this place and this people, this world. And yet here comes the kingdom, just like he promised, towards people who are unworthy. And as we divide ourselves into classes of good people and nice people and clean people and rich people and poor people, Jesus goes to the lowest of those and begins the inauguration of the kingdom. Notice where he says the first proclamation of his public ministry. It's not in Jerusalem. It's in the north, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Those were wicked people. And that's where the Messiah is going to go and proclaim uh, the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. Because he's trying to tell the world something. That's who needs it. And then he's going to move into Jerusalem and he's going to say, hey, the people that are following me now understand and will be seated at my table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you, who reject the Messiah, and who will crucify him, even though you're Pharisees and sons of Abraham and all this stuff, you won't be at the table. Because I came for those people who start with repentance and understanding of unworthiness because they've seen my glory. And by the grace of God, he allows us that in the face of Jesus. So if you want to be confronted with that, Honestly, wholeheartedly, start here. See what the Lord does, shows you, reveals to you. That's what happened to me. And he'll make perfectly clear not only who you are, but who he is. And there's a solution for that contrast, and it's him and his grace. So, if he started there, if he began there, then why not you? You're no worse or no better. You're a human. You qualify. He's come for people that you and I would think he would never save. Except we're all in the same boat. So here's the kingdom of heaven. 
He'd seen it come in Jesus. He'd see it lived out in his people, I hope. And I think from the reports that I got from this weekend, you saw it lived out in the way that things were facilitated and the way sacrifices were made and the way that people loved doing that so that you could be confronted with the glory of God. So I, I pray that um, you would speak to a merciful God and respond and then we'll stand and sing.